It took a vision from a blind nun in Germany to figure out where Jesus' mother Mary is said to have retired on a hillside just outside Ephesus. There was a theory that there was a house of Mother Mary in or around Ephesus, but it had not been discovered for ages until a German nun had visions of Mother Mary describe her where she lived. Coming up, we'll step back 2,000 years among the frescoes and mosaics of the ancient city of Ephesus in Turkey. Filmmaker David Adams follows the decidedly untouristy trail of Alexander the Great in Central Asia. And it was one of the richest experiences of my life, I'd have to say, with an Afghan general in the city that Alexander may have built, having a vodka and taking it all in. And tour the campuses of Oxford and Cambridge in England. They're based on monasteries, basically, because that was the origin of the colleges. Discover the marvels of being a time traveler in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. As an American who lives in a part of the country where anything over 100 years old is pretty rare, I get a real thrill when I visit places where you can be immersed in history from hundreds, even thousands of years ago. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, we'll look at where you can find Europe's best examples of Gothic architecture. We'll compare what you'll encounter when you visit the age-old college towns of Oxford and Cambridge, rivals in England. We'll also get pointers from travel experts in Turkey for walking the streets of Ephesus to get a sense of city life from more than 2,000 years ago. Australian photojournalist David Adams spent six years exploring the crossroads of the ancient world. It took him deep into parts of Central Asia, where few visitors venture these days, even into areas controlled by the Taliban during wartime in Afghanistan. David's travels helped to set the record straight on some of the mythology behind Alexander, and it showed him remains of the highly developed civilizations that were already thriving along the Oxus River Valley when Alexander and his troops came calling. The video series he created from all these travels is called Alexander's Lost World. David, good to have you back on Travel with Rick Steves. Great pleasure. Now, when you spent six years traveling basically from Greece to Afghanistan, you went through a lot of countries that most of us don't think about when we sort through our travel dreams. What were the countries where you found a wealth of culture to explore and archaeological sites to venture into? You know, I think that if you follow the, the kind of trajectory of Alexander, you sweep through all of sort of near Asia and then uh, Middle Asia, Central Asia, and all of them are worth exploring. We particularly traveled across through Azerbaijan, across the Caspian Sea to Turkmenistan, and then from Turkmenistan into Afghanistan, and then sort of crisscrossed back and forth from Uzbekistan through Tajikistan, all the way almost to the Chinese border. Wow. I guess we should give some context. First of all, Alexander, of course, is known across that part of the world as the, the great conqueror from Greece, and Alexander took Greek culture and in his short lifetime spread it all the way east to the border of India. And what, what I learned from your series, uh, Alexander's Lost World, is he didn't bring civilization there. He found civilization there, and he maybe brought Greek culture, and he left with a, a Greek temple on the main square of each city. But he certainly didn't bring uh, civilization to a place that had no civilization. I was impressed when I watched your series, David, of just the sheer amount of archaeological sites just strewn everywhere across the arid countryside. Talk about the abundance of archaeological sites and the aridness of the countryside and how fortified everything was. Well, there was one place we particularly went to, a place called Zadian, which is um, north of a town in, in northern Afghanistan called Mazar Sharif. And we went out to a particular citadel in search of Alexander's lost cities. And we met a local mullah and, and we had tea with him. And then I climbed his, his minaret, which was um, broken off at the top. But it was, it was from the 10th century. And as we stood on the top of this minaret, we could see this incredible fortress about a, a kilometer and a half away, which we then went and explored. But what was mind-blowing is that from that viewpoint, mm. I could see another eight citadels. And beyond them, there was a fortified wall that I've mapped through Google that runs for something like 240 kilometers right across the this kind of delta area. 
And that dates back to the Persian time, so before Alexander. I mean, these guys, these were really complex city-states, well defended. There must have been an inordinate amount of, of fighting between them. But almost every delta area, every river that you find there has this sort of setup. So it's everywhere. Within most of the stands, Afghanistan aside for a moment, the places that have been excavated and are available are, are really, you know, looked after quite well. And there is access is no problem. You can go and stumble around. And I'm glad they're taken care of because, of course, it's tragic when, uh, when they fall victims of a war like a lot of treasures in Afghanistan have. I had the good fortune of going to Iran and, and going down to Persepolis. And I was so blown away by Persepolis, the, the capital of ancient Persia. I like to say it's my vote for the the most impressive ancient site between the Mediterranean and India. But, of course, I haven't traveled anywhere near as much as you have. What would your vote be for the most uh, impressive ancient site between Greece and, and India? Well, it is hard to choose because it's the sort of topography that these places sit in as well. You know, it's not only the ruin and you imagining colonnades and, and beautiful things. It's the drama of, of the drama, being in the Hindu yeah. Kush, mm. you know. The Hindu um, Kush. You know, uh, the Hindu Kush. Well, Hindu Kush, that, that means Hindu killer. And obviously, it probably was a barrier for Indian expansion, depending on, you know, which empire you look at and talk about as far as how big India was or how big Afghanistan was. And Afghanistan was enormous. I mean, under Babur it, in the sort of 1500s, it spread all the way through northern India. You know, when you look back in the history and you're trying to sort of get a handle on, on the civilizations that built these incredible cities, you realize that they were far more interconnected than today. And, you know, we live in big cultural footprints, religious cultural footprints. Uh, then you had a lot more give and take. A camel caravan traveling from present-day Delhi to, to Kabul, you know, took about three weeks. And hmm. so the idea of goods, ideas and things moved, you know, along these trade routes. And there was a great connectedness. It was a different environment, not these kind of, as we operate, you know, East and West and Islam and Christianity. It was, it was far more fluid. Filmmaker David Adams is sharing highlights with us now on Travel with Rick Steves. Highlights from the years he spent tracing the ancient trade routes of Alexander the Great. This odyssey led him across some of the most unforgiving territory of Central Asia, including war zones in Afghanistan. His efforts yielded remarkable footage of sites few Westerners ever get to see. And it gave him access to the people who make their homes in the stark landscapes of Central Asia. The result is a TV documentary series called Alexander's Lost World. It's shown from time to time on public TV, and it's available as a six-part DVD set from Athena. David, you know, when I was watching your show, I saw some dramatic views, and it reminded me when I was on the old uh, hippie bus across Asia. I was going from Istanbul all the way to Kathmandu, and one of the wow. <laughs> one of the visual uh, thrills was going over the Khyber Pass, and I had been for several weeks in arid and vast and, and barren land and got to the top of Khyber Pass, and ahead of me I saw this lush, rolling expanse, and it was welcome to Pakistan, you know? Can you imagine the feeling, and I must, you must have had it also, when you come to a bluff... And in front of you, you see a lush, rolling terrain, which would have uh, fertilized and, and supported great civilizations. Did you find that in your travels across the stands? In the last episode of the series, we get up into, we're in the Wakhan Corridor, which is in the Pamir, and it's bordered by Pakistan, Tajikistan, and, and China right at the end. And you come up through the, these ravines of the, the Oxus and this, the, the river flowing through, you know, almost impenetrable gorges. So much so that the trade route actually operated in winter and they walked up the frozen river. Hmm. But you come up out of these passes and then you hit these high plains, which is called, you know, Tibet is also called the roof of the world, but the Pamir is called the roof of the world. And this particular valley, the Wakhan, is about five kilometers wide and it goes for, you know, some 200 kilometers. Hmm. And on either side, you've got peaks going up to five and a half, six thousand meters. It's, you know, it's, look, it's under snow about nine months of the year. Right. But for those three months, it is this lush, verdant, mm. you know, high plains. And it's so incredibly beautiful and untouched. The, the Kurzig nomads live up there. Um, mm -hmm. and they are the de facto border force. You know, they, there's no police, no army. It's so remote. There's an old Russian missile base up there, actually, which, um, no one wants to freely admit to, but it, uh, mm. it was there to, um, you know, when the, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. But, that aside, it is a pristine wilderness, and my camera and I would just walk out, traveling with the axe, carrying all our gear, and the two of us would just go off maybe two or three kilometers ahead and just walk 
in the silence of this wilderness. And uh, it's pristine. It's uh, thankfully now a national park. One thing I was struck by your uh, Alexander's Lost World series was how maybe almost everything else was gone from an ancient uh, valley civilization except for the irrigation projects. They were quite involved and, and quite resilient, actually, aren't they? They are. And in fact, in sort of the 1950s, the, the Soviet investment in Afghanistan got a lot of those working again. And then now they're all shattered and broken. But the largest are incredible. I mean, they're, they're vast earthworks that you think only a tractor could have dug. But in fact, they were dug by hand in 2000 BC. And reminding us that we often underestimate the uh, industrial might and the technical know-how of these civilizations that were a thousand years before Alexander the Great brought them some civilization. Exactly. And I think that's what you know we realized and what hopefully the, the program shows is that, mm -hmm. that you think you know history and you think you know the world and what's been discovered and it's all in its place. But then when you dig a little deeper, mm -hmm. you realize that there are whole chapters that we just don't know about. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Adams, and David's TV series is called Alexander's Lost World. You can see it on public broadcasting here in the United States, and it's available on DVD through Athena. David, let's just close this out talking about, of course, even if you're focused just on archaeology, you're going to be meeting people and learning about the contemporary cultures. What did you learn about the people of this part of the world that we really can't learn from the news, or we couldn't learn unless we actually go there ourselves? I'll give you a, an example. We were up at a place called Ai Hanum, which is actually right on the Tajik-Afghan border, and the, and the Oxus River flows through right around a particular site. It's the only Greek city ever to be found in Asia. It was built after Alexander, but it is amazing, you know, huge amphitheater and palaces and, and mm. barracks and all that sort of thing. But we had to get permission from a local general and ended up sitting with him and talking, and he was an incredible font of knowledge um, an educated man and knew more than I did about about the local area. There, there is actually a, a ferry that does go across, and even though that border on the Tajik side is very, very well defended, he has connections, and so he got some vodka sent across, and we sat there and talked about ancient history and what times were like back in the time of Alexander and thousands of years before him. And it was one of the richest experiences of my life, I'd have to say, with an Afghan general sitting on in the city that, that Alexander may have built, having a vodka and taking it all in. And then that night, there was an earthquake while we were in our tents, and I couldn't even stand up. It was, uh, and it wasn't the vodka. <laughs> oh, yeah. What a, what a perfect storm of uh, sensory experiences and cultural experiences. David Adams, thanks for making Alexander's Lost World, and thanks for traveling with us today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. We have links to David Adams' video series for Alexander's Lost World in this week's Travel with Rick Steves show details. You find that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our next stop is my favorite site anywhere for getting in touch with the ancient Greek and Roman world. We'll get expert advice for touring the streets of Ephesus and other important historic sites nearby in western Turkey. And later, we compare the rival academic cities of Oxford and Cambridge and pick which one makes the most sense for you to visit when you're touring England. We're at 877-333-7425. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves.
2,000 years ago, Ephesus was a city of over a quarter million. It was the Roman capital for Asia Minor. Today, Ephesus is often considered the most extensive restoration anywhere of the Greco-Roman world. In its heyday, Ephesus, or Ephes as the Turks call it, attracted visitors to the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was also one of the major stops of Apostle Paul as he was spreading the Christian gospel. Whether you only get a few hours to stroll the streets of Ephesus during your cruise ship stopover, or have a full day or more to devote to exploring it on your own, there's a lot to take in. And still, only a small part of the metropolis has been excavated. Guiding us into the marvels of Ephesus right now are Turkish tour guides Yaren Turkoglu and Lali Sermon Aran from SRM Tours in Istanbul. Lali and Yaren, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting. Lali, just tell me basically... What is the importance of Ephesus? Why is it the place where the cruise ship stops and everybody goes to see it? What is so important about Ephesus? Historically, it held a very important place. It was a major port for commerce on the Aegean Sea. That would be the eastern Mediterranean. And the area got quite popular because of the local production of olives, olive oil they were selling to the rest of the ancient world once upon a time. And the other main industry in Ephesus was the construction or building of the little statues of gods and goddesses. These were major producers of Ephesus that they shipped around. Of course, they did business, money came in, they could invest into their city. The more they invested into their city, the more it attracted attention. So this was a big, important city in Greek times and in Roman times. What was the population of Ephesus at its peak in the ancient times? The peak would be the Roman period, um, first three centuries after Christ, 250,000, so a quarter of a million people. A quarter of a million people. Now, Yaren, when you stand at the top of Ephesus with your groups and you look out and you see the remains of this city that is so important in so many ways and once had a quarter of a million people, which must have been one of the biggest cities in the Mediterranean world in its day, Describe the picture you see, Yaren, from the top of the street looking out over Ephesus. Actually, it's one of the most well-preserved ancient cities in Turkey and in the whole world. And you see the whole city, although only 15% of the city has been excavated. But what you see is a full-fledged city. Going to Ephesus is just like a snapshot in time. So you can walk down that main street and it's it's a parade of important palaces and temples and rich people's homes. And then at the bottom, of course, we'll talk about the library. And from the top... Lolly mentioned it was an important port, but the sea is several miles away. Almost six miles away now because the port had been silted up by the Küçük Menderes River for centuries. That's why it's no longer by the sea. The sea has receded because of the uh, delta there. It's silted up. Lolly, do you remember the first time, uh, now you go there, I mean, many times every year with your groups. Do you remember your first time in Ephesus? What was it like? It felt unreal because when you talk about an ancient city, You expect the crumbs of a building here, crumbs of another building there, but Ephesus is complete. As you walk, you're just walking on the main street of the city, and it's still intact. Even though so little is excavated, there's so much to see, and it categorizes as the most complete ancient city anywhere in the world. What's an example of the completeness in a more intimate way when you're walking down the main street? Of course, you're going to see the facades of great temples and and wonderful buildings, but what's something personal, that you can kind of almost imagine people living there 2,000 years ago. I suppose it's both what's been excavated and the visitors, because it was a city of quarter million people once upon a time with the visitors today. You get to feel it. It was metropolitan once upon a time with people, traders coming from all parts of the Mediterranean, different clothes, different languages. It's exactly the same thing today. That's right. People, people are talking. People exactly, are impressed. Exactly. It's still crowded. Everybody Rush hour. Has a, Everybody has a rush to see this building or that building today among visitors, but in the past they had work to do and they were rushing. So the crowds that can be seen today in Ephesus just reflect the past, as Yaren said, snapshot of the history. Yaren, when you're taking your groups down the street, uh, we'll talk about the big buildings later, but what is some intimate little detail of life that you can point out if you know what to look for as you walk down the main street of the great ancient city of Ephesus? Actually, if when you just enter the site from the upper gate, when you start your walking, uh, you see the state Agora, which was the capital hill once, so people can easily relate to that. Uh-huh. And as we walk down, 
you see the fountains, the polio fountain, which distributed the water to the entire city. So it was a full-fledged city. You know, so it, it had running water, actually. It, it had, the houses of the wealthy had running water. So the Greeks, the ancient Greeks brought aqueducts, and then it was plumbed right into the main street. Definitely. And I also want to add something. It was a commercial city. It was a very important commercial city, but it was also a very important religious center. The Temple of Artemis was located there. That was one of the most important pilgrimage sites. And that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So one of the things people know when they hear the word Ephesus, if you study the Bible or if you know the Bible, you know there's a book in the Bible, Ephesians. And this was Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the people who lived there. Uh, Lolly, tell just very briefly the biblical history of Ephesus. It is known that St. Paul lived in Ephesus for a while, using the right that every free citizen had to preach from a theater. He wanted to use this very same right, and when he wanted to appear in public, the silversmiths and the goldsmiths of the city organized populations against what he had to preach because they feared that if a religion of one god was introduced, they would be out of business. So now, wait a minute. This is fascinating. (laughs) Paul is uh, a missionary, and this is in the first century, and he's in a city that's very big, very wealthy, and a big part of the industry is making these figurines for worshiping different pagan goddesses. Exactly, exactly. And the whole Christian message is you don't need to worship these figurines. Exactly. You've got one god up in. and then So there's a built-in conflict of interest here. What happened? Thousands gathered in the theater, and St. Paul went up to the stage to deliver his speech, but he couldn't because thousands were yelling back at him, saying that great is Artemis of Ephesus. So that was the hometown girl, the home goddess, and you're not going to let any Christian come in and say this is just The mother goddess, yep. Um, Paul had to, for his own safety, get out of town. Yes, and then write the letters. Oh, so instead of giving the speech, he ended up writing a letter to the Ephesians, and that ends up as one of the books in the New Testament. Exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Amitava is on the phone in Danville in California. Amitava, thanks for your call. Yes, hello, Rick. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call. So I was, I was on a cruise uh, this, uh, this past summer on the Princess Cruise, and we spent one day in Ephesus. It was a very hot day, by the way, in August. But one day was simply not enough to cover the marvels of Ephesus. First of all, I think I want to mention that the design and the acoustics of the amphitheater was incredible, and I'm an engineer by training. And all the kinds of calculations that we go through these days to build an auditorium, and they didn't have all that, and yet they were able to build such a wonderful, acoustically well-designed amphitheater. You know, Amitava, to hear you say that is, as an engineer is very affirming because just me as just a, a travel writer, I've gone to that theater and stood in the middle and done my friends, Romans, countrymen thing, and people can hear you. Lolly, how many people could sit in that theater, do they think? 24,000 people. 24,000. I understand that the way archaeologists can estimate the size of a city is multiplying the capacity of its theater by 10. So you can guess that 24,000 in the amphitheater estimate quarter of a million people in the city. So Amitav, I'm sorry I, I interrupted you, but carry on. The question I had was one day was not enough. I'm definitely going to go back. I'm going to go to a class in Oxford, but after that I'm going to spend two weeks in, in Turkey, and I'm going to go back to Ephesus. And I wanted to find out from your guests how many days should I plan to spend around that area to see it well and understand the biblical history? Well, that's an open-ended question. Lolly, you've been uh, taking groups around this area for a long time. How many yes. days could you fill with interesting for sites? Ephesus, with a good planning, for the site of ancient city, you don't need more than a day. Mm-hmm. What you need is a good understanding and a good planning of the ancient city and setting your goals before you head that way. But if you have more time and you want to see around... Pergamum would be a good destination. It was one of the seven churches of the Revelation. It's north of Ephesus. It would be about a two-hour drive one way from Ephesus, but I say it's a good side trip if you are into biblical history. And what is the name of that town again? Pergamon. Pergamon. It was the and capital city. And it's famous city. because yes. most of its, uh, a lot of its treasures are in Berlin now, in the yes. Pergamon Museum exactly. there. It's an impressive acropolis sitting on top of a hill, and there's so much history with it. Uh, in the direction of Izmir, could we stay in Izmir and then go to Pergamon from there? Yes, you can easily. From Izmir, it would be an hour trip one way. And if you are taking Izmir as a base, you can consider going a little bit east as well to the ancient city of Sardis. 
which again has an important biblical history and was a major city once upon a time, both during the Greek and the Roman periods. You might recognize the city by the name of its king that it had once upon a time, King Croesus. I think in English there's a saying that goes, as rich as Croesus. Mm. It was the Lydian kingdom who used Sardis as their capital city and was the very first place in the world history where money was minted. And Amitava, there's entire tours built around the footsteps of Paul. And, and uh, I can go on and on and on. I, I would recommend Aphrodisias and Hierapolis also, which are farther exactly. inland. Exactly. They would be south and southeast. I visited Virgin Mary's shrine and the house that she's supposed to have lived in. Did she die in Ephesus? And is St. Paul's grave also in Ephesus? Uh, Yaren, can you explain the, you know, because it's hard to know for certain, but a lot of pilgrims uh, believe that the Virgin Mary actually, after Jesus was crucified, lived in Ephesus outside of town, and there's a Virgin Mary's house that people visit. Do people accept that this was actually her home, or how would they know? Actually, many people accept that that was the home of Mother Mary, uh, and they see it as a kind of a main pilgrimage site. And I think it's because of a dream of a German, is it? Yes, that's that how it was discovered. Yes, uh, the discovery. First, technically talking about, it's been proved that a house existed where the site is on today. There's a house from the first century AD. The theory is that if Mother Mary ever lived in Ephesus, she wouldn't have lived in a city which would be hostile against her, but she would live in seclusion within a short distance to Ephesus. That's the theory why the house that has the remains of a first century AD period must have been used by Mother Mary. There was a theory that there was a house of Mother Mary in or around Ephesus, but it had not been discovered for ages until a German nun had visions of Mother Mary describe her where she lived. And a team was established by the descriptions given by this German nun, and they found it. They followed the nun's dream yes. and they found this and house? and the nun had never been to Ephesus. And she was blind, as far yes, as I remember. she was blind. She had never been to wow. Ephesus. It's on the mountains. It's quite off from Ephesus, and it was found. And then archaeological survey was made. In the archaeological survey, they found that it was inhabited in the 1st century AD, and it was rebuilt in the 7th century AD, again bringing us the theory that People in the 7th century AD knew she lived there. So they were honoring the place even 1,300 years ago. Amitava, thanks for your call. And Rick, thank you very much for taking my call. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Fred's calling in from Oak Hill in Virginia. Well, thank you, Rick, and thanks for taking my call. And uh, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, I echo what uh, you and your previous caller said about that theater. The acoustics are amazing. You echo it. That's very good. I, did you stand there actually and sing or, or demonstrate did, it? Did exactly what you said, uh, what you did. We just had some people talking in a very normal conversational tone, like in a room, and I could hear it halfway up the theater. And that was in the middle of the day. It was unbelievable. Remarkable, yeah. Well, my wife and I took the biblical Ephesus tour twice in the past three years, and we uh, were overwhelmed by the beauty of the city, of course, and very impressed with the efficiency friendliness and expertise of our tour operators. Now, we noticed that restoration is ongoing, and we would be interested in knowing if there is some sort of schedule for new buildings or areas to be restored within Ephesus. And you know that's, So we have a timetable. Right. Yaren just mentioned when we stand at the top of the city, we're gazing out over this vast archaeological site, and only 15% of it is excavated, and climbing up the hills on both sides would be the buried remains of the rest of that city, Lolly, for me, one of the most exciting things, is, and you took me there with our TV crew just last year, is the terrace houses. Describe the importance of these from an archaeological point of view and the ongoing work right on the main street in Ephesus. First of all, in order to live in a central location in a city in the past, you had to be very important. When you go through Ephesus, you don't see the house of the common folk, but the residences that can be seen used to be owned by the ultra, ultra rich and important of the ancient history once upon a time. And uh, some of these homes of the important people has been excavated and it has been still, it's being restored. This is taking a long time because there's still so much to do. Uh, there are numerous such houses in the downtown of Ephesus. Only five has been excavated and being worked on now. And I asked the very same question to the archaeologists when I go to Ephesus. 
they tell me that they're leaving the rest for future generations. So it's better not to uncover it unless exactly. you're ready to really finish it because it's a delicate jigsaw puzzle and it's laid out under the canopy outside of the scorching sun. Yes. And you stood with me in the courtyard explaining the beautiful art all around. Can you take us just to the courtyard of one of these rich people's homes and, and tell us what the art meant to the people? Most of the houses was what we call an atrium house, which means that there would be a central courtyard in the houses and then there would be rooms around it. This can be a single floor, two floors, or three floor houses. The ones that can be seen today in Ephesus used to have two or three floors. And on the walls, they had beautiful frescoes, beautiful mosaics, and on the floors, they had beautiful decorations as well. As well as placing marble slabs, they placed floor mosaics. And what I love most about the decorations in the terrace houses in Ephesus is to notice the former decorations. It's fun. You imagine you walk into one house, you see a decoration, but underneath underneath the fresco, you see another fresco layer, which means that mother-in-law had decorated it previously. <laughs> oh, I love it. And in a lot of cases, these are houses that are in facing inward, facing into a courtyard. Yes. So they bring nature into the family environment yes. with the help of art. Yes. Fred, thank right. you so much for your call. Happy travels. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I have had so much fun talking about, personally, one of my favorite ancient sites in the entire ancient world. And let's just wrap up our conversation here. I've been joined by uh, Lali Sermon Aran and Yaren Turkoglu, my friends who are guides. If you could explain a particularly gratifying moment for you as a guide. Yaren, when you're with your groups, take us to one little dimension of Ephesus and explain it to us. One of my favorite sites in Ephesus is the Library of Celsus which was the third biggest library in the ancient world, only rivaled by the library in Pergamon and the library in Alexandria. Mm. And because of the recent restorations, you can see the library intact now, and you can just imagine how it was. And it stands there like a temple to knowledge in an age when really wisdom. who controlled the knowledge had power. Definitely, definitely. Lali. What I like about Ephesus is that it's not a museum piece. People living in Ephesus did not build it so that 2,000 years later we come and visit and marvel at it. It was a living city. When you realize that they used to have roads to the connecting cities, there were signposts on these cities, on these roads, and these signposts announced of the festivals coming up in the city, mentioned about the accommodations available in the city and how fun it would be being in Ephesus during a festival. It was a thriving metropolitan. It was a thriving port city, and that's what I like about it. We you, could we could actually dress up in the proper robes and, and walk down that city 2,000 years ago and relate to things. Exactly. It would be like a city of ours. Exactly. That's what I like. And that's our challenge as guides, is to help our travelers resurrect and understand the past and, and relate it to our present. Exactly. Lolly and Yaren, thank you so much thank for you. helping us better understand the Pleasure. Ephesus. Thank you, Rick. Share your own tips and thoughts for visiting Ephesus with us in the radio section of ricksteves.com. The elaborate architecture of Europe's greatest cathedrals and universities can give you more options than you have time for. Which Gothic cathedral deserves to be at the top of your touring list? We'll look at that in just a bit. Grandeur, history, and tradition are some of the attributes you'll notice when visiting the great and venerable university towns of England. But since most visitors have tight schedules, you'll have to choose one. Oxford or Cambridge. Expert advice from two of our favorite British guides is just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Would you rather go to Oxford or Cambridge? Okay, not necessarily as a student. How about as a tourist? But the big question is, which of the great university towns in England is the best use of your time when touring? They're both doable as a day trip from London, and the towns that house these prestigious universities each have a special appeal, a unique appeal of its own. To help us decide between the sites of Cambridge and Oxford, we're joined now by Tom Hooper and Gillian Chadwick. Welcome. Thanks for inviting us. So when you think about Cambridge and Oxford, they're, without any doubt, great universities. Mm -hmm. How are their reputations among the English people? What do people think when they think Oxford? What do they think when they think Cambridge? Oh, we all know they're great rivals. Yes. They dislike each other intensely and want to beat each other at all the sporting activities. Especially rowing. Especially rowing, yes. Now, if you were a person of means and you had a smart child and you wanted them to go to the best university in the country, which would you choose, Gillian? Oxford. Why? 
Oh. <laughs> reputation? Just a, reputation. Just a general feeling about I think reputation? It, I think I if think... I wanted my child to be a scientist, I'd probably send them to Cambridge mm-hmm. because it has a better scientific reputation. Vocational scientific. But if you wanted your child to be... A philosopher or... Maybe just really um, appealing to uh, a potential mate. Where would you have the better reputation? <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer that. How about you, Tom? <laughs> I think you would find a potential excellent mate at both. Yes, exactly. I bet you can't do much better, <laughs> right? <laughs> where, would I, you, where would you want your child to go? I personally, but it is utterly personal, I would go to Cambridge. Cambridge, why? Yeah. That is because in my youth in the 17th century, I spent a summer at Cambridge, and I grew to much like the almost slightly village feel to it. That was my impression about Cambridge. It does have more of a village feel, where Oxford is more urban. Mm. Oxford is more strolling. But they both have this interesting, I think uniquely English, mix of town and gown. Yes, Gillian, what does that mean, the mix of town and gown? Well, the gown represents the university, the town, obviously the town. And like there's uh, rivalry between Oxford and Cambridge, there's always been rivalry between the town and the gown. And you don't have a campus intact like we're used to here in the United States. You have 20 or 30 different colleges scattered throughout the town. It is the collegiate basis, and they both have similar architecture, similar approach to things, and they're almost interchangeable in terms of visitors getting what they want out of them. That's right, and the town has grown around the college. So when you wander down the main shopping street in Oxford or Cambridge, it's Mm. pretty clear that this is a university town. Oh, yes, Yes. unmistakable. And the students all have bicycles because you can't drive in those little narrow streets, and they're not allowed to have cars, actually, are they? And what does that do for the the scene after dinner in the pubs and so on? Uh, Makes it very wobbly. (laughs) Wobbly. (laughs) So during the school year, during the school season, there's a lot of people out being wobbly. Yes. I think there's a wobbliness, yeah, which is a tradition at both, probably. Fair amount of wobbliness. <laughs> in now, both. does this character change depending on if school's in session or not? No. no. All year so. long, it's no. going to be wobbly. So there's a lot of students, you a lot of know. fun You've in the pub. You been a There's a lot of action going on <laughs> in not, Oxford. Have you not been wobbly? <laughs> I'll leave the questions to me, sir. <laughs> when we're talking about these uh, English colleges, there's sort of a, a consistent design. Gillian, can you talk about the main elements of a college when you're going to visit? Yeah, they're based on monasteries, basically, because that was the origin of the colleges. 800 years ago or something, they were started by religious orders. That's right, To educate the elites who happened to be associated with the church. Exactly. So you have a quadrangle, which Uh is the living accommodation. Right. Now they all have individual study bedrooms, but they would have had dormitories originally. So the quadrangle is the square where things come together. That's right. And then there's a gatehouse with a warden that keeps an eye on who's coming in and going out. I would imagine they had a curfew in the old days. Absolutely. They're all walled, of course. Yes. So like an old convent or monastery walled. Yep, and they've all got a dining hall, a library, and a chapel. A Harry Potter-esque dining hall. Absolutely. Every time I think of a college there. Indeed, I think that is partly Christchurch, Oxford, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah. It's in Oxford, Christchurch. Filmed there, yeah. yeah. And they've got dormitories, they've got spectacular libraries, Mm. and churches with some great art. Absolutely, Absolutely, yes. Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper are certified tour guides from London, and they're with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to help us choose between visiting Cambridge or Oxford when we're exploring England. When it comes to seeing these towns, whether it's Oxford or Cambridge, the tourist office offers these marvelous guided walks. Mm -hmm. And uh, if somebody has the luxury of their own private guide or is taking a tour, that's wonderful. But if you're just coming in independently, you could check in with the tourist office, and you'll get a two-hour walk visiting several colleges. Yep. Tom, what might you experience on one of these walks? I think the key thing with that is you are probably going to see parts of colleges you wouldn't see if you were an independent visitor. They often have arrangement with colleges. Mm -hmm. And you'll get a flavor not just for the history, the architecture, the art, but also how life is at the college. With a guide explaining things. So you can actually, with your small group, accompanied by your guide, go into the dormitories, go into the church, go into the dining hall. Or whatever it is they've arranged. And then, of course, you can supplement that with your individual visits to King's College Cambridge or a bit of punting. Now, that Um, is interesting, the punting. And that's one reason why I like to go to Cambridge is because they have the backs, right? They do. Explain the back. Yeah, behind the main group of colleges, which King's is quite dominant, 
King's College King's in College, Cambridge. Cambridge, which is famous in the world for carols at Christmas. Mm-hmm. There's a river cam, which is sufficiently shallow that you can punt down it. Punt? What is that? And that is you have this long boat where you stand on the end with a stick called a punt and use the stick to put into the riverbed to push yourself along. So this little canal or riverbed is just three feet deep or something, yeah. and you've got this stick, and you've got your girlfriend in the punt. Which is who you're desperately trying to impress. And the, the boat is flat bottom yes. with no keel. And you're gently drinking wine in the summer. And if I was doing it, I'd be going 360 degrees round and around. That is what some people... Mm. Actually, it's not so easy to do that. No, but, but you the, do fall the, in. The very easy thing is to not know the river very well, and there are bits that are muddy... So you get the pole in the mud, and you then have a choice. The boat will move off with or without you. <laughs> so you <laughs> Leave the pole or, or leave, leave the boat. boat. Alternatively, you could get one of their college students yes. to... Now, that would that make is, sense. Yeah, and they do a guided tour as well. So And that would be very graceful and mm. romantic you know, and, and intimate. It's not showing off so much to whoever you're with, mm-hmm. but it's more romantic, it's, probably. It's more romantic and less risky. Yes. Although anybody with half an adventurous spirit can rent one of these uh, boats yes. and pull around. And I've tried it several times, and it's and really uh, it's hard to steer a straight course. Mm. For those who can't, there's a path which runs along the side, and you get these spectacular views of one college after another. It is delightful, it the is, backs of Cambridge. Mm. So can we agree that maybe Oxford might be the choice for your child for an education, but for a tourist... Cambridge is probably the easier, more idyllic, small-town, cosy town to visit? Yeah, it's more tourist-friendly. It's more compact. Yes. Tom, are you okay with that? Are we I, I, I'm okay. I'm very much like Oxford. Yeah. But Oxford is bigger. And I, Busier. I, I always feel as if I need rather more time in Oxford, mm. probably, whereas things in Cambridge are more compact. And somehow I feel as if I get more of the Oxbridge, which are the two together, experience by visiting Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Sounds yeah. strange, but that's... Well, Cambridge it. has... They both have the beautiful colleges yes. with the quadrangles and so on. They okay. both have a charm, a, an impressive English town. In Cambridge, you've got the Fitzwilliam Museum, which is excellent. Yeah. You've got all the park-like atmosphere yes. along the canal or the river, an opportunity to punt on the cam. And you've got the Wren Library, Trinity College, yeah. a lot of very yeah, famous places. And the chapels are seriously wonderful. Mm-hmm. Trinity's Queen's has the most stunning chapel as yeah. English people, when you think about Oxford and Cambridge, I would imagine there's lots of famous alums. Mm. When you think of Oxford, what are some famous alumni that come to mind? Well, Lewis Carroll, for example, was a professor at Christchurch, and he was inspired there for writing Alice in Wonderland. Bill Clinton was a yeah, Rhodes Scholar. At Oxford. Tol- at Oxford. Tolkien is another household Tolkien, name for Oxford. Yeah. And when we think Cambridge... Isaac Newton is by far the most famous scientist Isaac Newton. in history. Charles Darwin. Darwin. Darwin, yeah. yeah. Prince which, one, which school did Prince Charles went to, Prince to Cambridge? Royalty go to Cambridge. Oh, royalty go to Cambridge, mm. all right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about England's great university towns, Oxford and Cambridge. We've been joined by Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper. Gillian, as we consider going to Cambridge or Oxford... How would you reach either of these places from London by public transportation? Very easily. Uh, They're both one hour's journey by train. The stations are not close to the centre, purposely built that way because the authorities didn't want students being corrupted in London. Oh, to make London, the temptations of London a little bit farther away. Tom, give me one example of how you can enjoy the culture in Cambridge. Cambridge came out of Oxford came out of Oxford. It's a splinter of Oxford. Mm. The story is that in the 13th century, issues in Oxford leading to riots led some students to flee Oxford, and they eventually settled on this quite boggy area, Cambridge. So Cambridge is like 700 years old, and Oxford is 800 years old. Okay. And of course, it then starts building and continues to build, and one of the great masterpieces comes when they build King's College Chapel, which has the most extraordinary fan-vaulted ceiling, Mm -hmm. one of the great glories of architecture in England. And there is little to beat going to Cambridge, going to King's late afternoon, and then going to the chapel there and sitting while you take in the Evensong, which is the main service of the day. And there you are with the sublime singing of the choir, which is 
world famous. And then you have this architecture around you, and it's as if you have been transported back. With the low light of the setting sun, if that's the case, yes. that day streaming yes. through these precious Gothic yes. windows. Yes. Followed by that romantic punt on the river camp. That sounds delightful. Tom Hooper, Gillian Chadwick, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion about Oxford and Cambridge. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Us. For more of the glories of Gothic architecture, I've invited in the co-author of my Europe 101 History and Art for Travelers book. Jean Openshaw joins us now for a Gothic Smackdown. Let's see which of Europe's cathedrals deserves the title of Champion of the Medieval Era. Jean, it seems like all over Europe, there's one place where travelers are sure to enjoy an awe-inspiring sight. It's free, it's right in the main square, it's a big, glorious building. You're stepping into the biggest church in town, and it's usually, or it's often a Gothic church. In most of these, you go, wow. You're standing in the nave, these big, thick columns. Mm. You look up, you see the crisscross arches overhead, mm-hmm. and the whole thing's flooded with light, almost like from heaven, through light. the stained glass window. That really is the essence of Gothic, the, the wonder, wonder of, of Gothic. Gothic. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, Gina, how do you define Gothic? Um, the Gothic era in the Middle Ages, I'd say roughly from around the year 1200 to 1500, when all over Europe there were great, huge cathedrals built. Okay, now this is a big change from previous churches because from the year 1000 to 1200, there was a lot of impressive Romanesque churches, but they were dark. They had round arches, and the essential change is the pointed arch of Gothic, isn't it? The pointed arch allowed them to build higher. It distributed the weight more evenly, which meant that they could open up the walls, which formerly had been thick, for stained glass. Okay, so Romanesque, hunky, fortresses of God, Gothic, really tall, lots of stained glass, lots of light inside. There's a lot of great Gothic cathedrals. Uh, what's an example of a, um, of a Gothic cathedral you just you just really enjoy? I first think of Chartres, mm-hmm. just an hour south of Paris, easy day trip, mm-hmm. beautiful, and one of the very first and a beautiful unity of architecture, statuary, and stained glass. Built relatively quickly. Some Gothic cathedrals took 200 years to build, and then you got competing architectural visions, but... Chart, a lot of the people who were there for the laying of the first stone saw the thing finished. They were there with their grandkids oh, six man. decades later. That's just, uh, what, a couple hours from Paris. Uh, in downtown Paris, you've got the Saint-Chapelle, and that's much smaller. It was the chapel built to house the crown of thorns, but just almost completely stained glass. You step in there and you just see this lantern of, of stained glass light and, and the wonder of the Gothic age. Milan? Mm-hmm. Very different. You don't even really think of that as a Gothic cathedral, but uh, the Milan Cathedral's got those prickly flamboyant spires on the roof line. Flamboyant, flame-like, literally. The the last flowery evolution of Gothic before the Renaissance came in. Okay, time for our smackdown. You and I'll each choose one church, okay? So, And then we're going to have a little competition. What's your nominee? Who are you going to go with as the greatest Gothic church in Europe? I will not pick any of those we have talked about. I will pick the greatest I pick. Notre Dame. Right in Paris. Right in Paris. Mm-hmm. It's the most famous, and it comes from the city where the Gothic style was born. Oh, good for you. I'm going to pick Cologne. It's Ooh. Germany against France, and Cologne Ooh. is on the Rhine River. You step out of the Cologne train station, and there it is, rocketing up high, the Cologne Cathedral. All right. You pick Cologne. I pick Notre Dame. Let's see who is the greatest. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> In this corner, weighing in at uh, 850 years old, known throughout Europe as Our Lady of Paris, it's Notre Dame. Yay, yay, formidable. And in this corner, weighing in at almost 500 feet long and 300 feet wide, hailing from the heart of the Rhine River, it's the Cologne Cathedral. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling, they're off. Okay, I'll start off with the first blows. I say Notre Dame is the greatest because of its exterior. Think of it. You're standing facing it. You see those big Mm. rectangular towers. You look up, there's gargoyles looking back down at you. And right in the center, the Statue of Mary, Our Lady of Paris, stands framed Mm. by a round rose window. Mm. All beautifully restored as well. Top that. I will. Cologne Cathedral. It is huge. You step out of the train station. You stand in front of this glorious cathedral. 
what is it, 500 feet tall? That's, you know, Notre Dame's towers are only 200 feet tall. You're, Ooh, you, you get ouch. vertical whiplash. Your neck rockets right up. You feel like a Pez dispenser stuck on open. <laughs> and you just go, wow, Cologne is incredible. And then, with your neck still cranking up like that, you step into the cathedral and you are overwhelmed by the stained glass. There is like three football fields worth of stained glass inside. And Gene, relics. You can't have a champion cathedral without great relics. And inside the Cologne Cathedral, you've got the skulls of the three magi, the three kings in a jeweled reliquary. On top of that, you've got Fat Peter. Fat Peter is 24-ton bell, the biggest free-swinging church bell in the entire world. And the Cologne Cathedral is a survivor. During World War II, they had the firestorm in Cologne. 95% of the city was destroyed. The church itself was hit by 15 bombs, and it remained standing. Ooh, Cologne is pummeling Notre Dame. <laughs> Sorry to pile on. Oh, Notre Dame is down on the canvas. One, two, three, she's out. No, wait, she's back up. Notre Dame makes a comeback. She's hit him with her secret weapon, a flying buttress. Not the buttresses, no, no. <laughs> That's one of the things that makes Notre Dame so great. You know, you see these flying buttresses around the back, those stone beams that push back in. When you view it from the left bank, you know the spot I'm talking about. Mm. You see the Seine River in the foreground. You see the whole length of the cathedral. That's one of the most photogenic spots in all of Europe. Arguably one of the best single photographs to capture the brilliance of Gothic architecture. And that's saying something. ding a ling a ling ling Okay, that's the final bell. Nice try. Uh, now it's time to talk to the judges. And, uh, yep, they've, they've made their decision. The winner. Is it the Notre Dame in Paris or the Cologne Cathedral on the Rhine River? The winner and the undisputed champion of the medieval era is the Cathedral of Cologne. What? Nice try, dude. <laughs> I demand a rematch. Gene, it's been fun riffing on culture with you, and it's always a good reminder that a little art and a little history and an appreciation of Gothic architecture can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is a production of Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. It's produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had studio help this week from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Sydney. Rick narrates audio walking tours of Ephesus and many historic destinations in Europe. Look for the audio tours link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.